Welcome to the Confluence of Ideas from Confluence Investment Management, focusing on major geopolitical and economic trends and their investment implications. I'm Phil Adler. In its 2023 mid-year geopolitical outlook report, Confluence has identified global uncertainties that investors would be wise to monitor closely in the months ahead. Joining us for this discussion are the authors of this report, Confluence Chief Market Strategist Bill O'Grady, Market Strategist Patrick Fearon-Hernandez, and Staff Economist Thomas Wash. Gentlemen, the first thing that stands out to me is the number of issues you identify in this report. Twelve. It seems like a large number, one that deserves your title, the poly crisis. Bill, beginning with you, how does that number compare to your previous outlooks? It, it's always an issue to figure out what to discuss, but we normally try to winnow it down to four to five issues. Occasionally, we will have a quick takes list that would briefly list other issues that didn't make the cut. But the term polycrisis, which Adam Tooze has been using, is really more about the fact that there are lots of problems in the world right now, and they can interact with each other in unusual ways. In the past, these issues tended to be separate. That's becoming less so. Yeah, by my count, it's about twice the number of issues we've typically covered in our year-end or mid-year geopolitical outlooks. There really is a lot going on right now. Because of the number of issues covered, we couldn't go quite as deep into some of them as we have in the past, and we couldn't fit in any graphs, but we did think it was important to touch on all of these. Can we assume that this suggests a world that is becoming much harder for investors, even expert investors, to keep up with and comprehend. Well, I, I think this is best described as a fat-tailed world. If you imagine a normal distribution, events on the tails of the distribution are usually very rare. This isn't a normally distributed world. Thus, the chances of rare events are elevated, meaning that the best laid plans can be overwhelmed by occurrences. This is especially true with analysis based purely on history. For some time, we have been warning investors that the end of U.S. hegemony would lead to greater variability. That's where we are now. And yes, for myself, I, I think it does make things harder, especially for individual do-it-yourself investors or even expert investors who don't have the expertise to analyze and respond to the geopolitical environment. Fortunately, that kind of analysis is our bread and butter here at Confluence. Well, before we discuss some of these issues individually, I'm struck by how little the stock market seems to be worried. In spite of international conflicts, inflation, interest rate hikes, and, and all of these major geopolitical challenges, the NASDAQ ended the first half of the year up over 30%. The S&P 500 was up almost 16%. At the same time, the CBOE's volatility index is well below levels which indicate investor concern. Is this a case of investors being asleep at the wheel? Well, I, I think a big part of the rally is due to liquidity being injected into the financial system. Yes, the AI revolution has clearly caught the fancy of investors. But in the immediate term, when, when money is in the hand of investors, there's a natural tendency to put it to work. That being said, there is also an element of ignoring some geopolitical factors simply because they seem hard to comprehend. We note that from March 1935 to February 1937, the S&P rose 250%. 
By this time, Japan had invaded China. In Europe, Hitler had established an alliance with Italy and was supporting Franco in the Spanish Civil War. He also occupied the Rhineland. In retrospect, the world was spinning into conflict, but clearly that belief was not widely held. And with regard to some of the issues going on now, you know, the market complacency probably stems from the sheer difficulty in understanding the potential risks. For example, today's Russian political instability could play out in many different ways, including political, economic, military, and even technological. Without concerted analytical effort and some deep expertise, it's easy to get overwhelmed by the difficulty in understanding the problem, so it's tempting to ignore it. In other in other cases, as with reindustrialization, the trend is only now starting to show up and be confirmed in the statistics. We've been talking about that issue literally for years, but as we show in the article, the economic statistics are only now starting to show that it's really happening. What measure did you use to rate these issues in order of importance? Is it the likelihood of delivering a meaningful shock to the markets? Yes. In, in other words, what's likely to occur in the coming months that will directly affect markets? And I would just add that the ranking of the various issues was largely subjective, basically aiming to capture the potential long-term consequences of the issue and probably to some extent also the likelihood that that event or trend could occur. You could easily quibble with some of the placements or rankings and different people would shift any particular issue up or down in the rankings. But overall, we think they're all becoming important enough that investors should take them into account when considering their investment strategy. We certainly do. Well, to the list then, number one is Russia-Ukraine. First, what is the likelihood, do you think, of a regime change in Russia, and how might that impact investors? You know, the likelihood of a regime change in Russia is 100%, actually, eventually at least. Obviously, President Putin is going to die at some point. But the degenerative impacts of this war on Ukraine and the June mutiny by the Wagner Group mercenaries have clearly weakened him. Of course, he's fighting back by trying to project a tough image and seizing the Wagner organization from its founder and mutiny leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. But there's a lot lot of meaning in the fact that he felt that he had to hold off killing Prigozhin and that his military forces proved unable or unwilling to stop the Wagner Group's march on Moscow. There's certainly a lot more going on in the Kremlin than we know, but the most likely scenario is that Putin is now fighting for his political life and may not survive more than a few more months. What appears, Patrick, to be the most likely outcome of the war between Russia and Ukraine? We continue to think the most likely scenario would be for Ukraine to push the Russians out of some additional territory, but for the two sides to ultimately begin peace talks as they eventually exhaust themselves. We see a high chance that the result will be a frozen conflict similar to the North Korea-South Korea one. In that case, the fighting would generally stop at some point, but tensions would remain worryingly high on NATO's eastern flank. Would this outcome be the best possible one for investors worried about oil prices? 
Well, to me, this scenario would suggest that Russia might still be tempted to resume its aggression at some future date, or that it might seek revenge off the battlefield by manipulating its exports of oil, gas, or other key minerals. After all, look at how the frozen conflict between North Korea and South Korea continues to create uncertainty and danger and friction in Northern Asia. Who would want to see something like that in Southeastern Europe? But again, that risk could potentially keep oil prices higher than they otherwise would be. And I'll chip in here too. I I think that the disruption of supply chains will continue. The EU can never rely on Russia to the same extent again, regardless of the outcome of the war. A sudden end to the war might be bearish for oil in the short run, but we don't think the decline would last. Moving on to issues two through four, they're all about China, beginning with difficulties in maintaining a working relationship between China and the U.S. Do you see a possibility that this relationship might deteriorate further in the months ahead? I think it's a real worry. We live in a polarized political environment in the U.S., and yet there is a strong bipartisan position in opposing China. Currently, the Biden administration is trying to open talks with China to stabilize the relationship. It appears that our G7 partners are pressing Washington to do something to arrest the downward spiral. However, by doing this, the Biden campaign is creating a vulnerability of being soft on China. It's worth noting that Bill Clinton used this charge against the Bush campaign in 1992 presidential election. I think the window to calm conditions down is closing rapidly, meaning risks will be likely increasing in the coming months. And I, for one, also think that the situation is likely to get worse. You know, there may be moments when both sides manage to temporarily cool tensions, but I think the overall trend will be for things to get worse rather than better. Part of it is that we're now in a clear cycle of action-reaction. Now that Western leaders have focused on the multi-layered threat from China, they're taking clear economic, technological, diplomatic, and military actions to protect themselves. And China is then responding and adding its own aggressive countermeasures against them. And then the cycle continues. But for me, it's just as important that the West is finally realizing just how aggressive China has become on the military front. After many years focused on China's economic and technological threats, Western leaders are now waking up to its massive military buildup, and especially the big increase in its arsenal of strategic nuclear weapons. Within a decade, China could well have more nuclear weapons capable of striking the U.S. than we deploy in total. That will make it increasingly hard to argue for friendlier relations, despite the entreaties of business elites like Elon Musk and Jamie Dimon, and despite the entreaties of the Europeans. Patrick and Bill, I wonder if the United States might have decided that now is the best time to raise the pressure on China before China can achieve military equilibrium with the U.S. In some sense, I think that's true. But the flip side of that is that U.S. leaders are only now realizing that our military is too small, and it would probably take us many years before we could increase it enough to deter China with certainty. That goes far toward explaining why we're working so hard to leverage our other sources of power, such as our alliances and our virtual monopoly on some types of advanced technology. 
Perhaps, but it's risky to increase pressure while the U.S. is is sending lots of military equipment to Ukraine. I think the U.S. was slow to recognize that China was not evolving into a democratic market society, and by the time that consensus shifted that China was hostile, we found ourselves vulnerable. Thus, some of what we are seeing now is sort of a catch-up to that new reality. China's youth unemployment is issue number three, one that investors might overlook. How how bad is it and, and where might it lead? Well, China is opaque on many issues and the economy is, is one of those. In a society that's rapidly aging, it's really puzzling that the unemployment among the young would be an issue. It may be a signal that the economy is much worse than the official data suggest. Now, another possibility is there's just a mismatch between skills and openings. But in developing markets, high level Levels of youth unemployment is often related to social unrest. Now, I would not expect that in China due to their effective social controls, but it could lead to a lost generation of workers, something we saw in Japan in the 1990s. Issue number four is China's debt problem. Bill, how does China compare to the United States on this issue? Well, China's overall debt's actually a little bit lower than ours, but they have more private sector debt. High levels of debt are always a concern, but the concerns are different depending upon whether the debt is government or private sector debt. Government sector debt tends to come down to the cost of servicing, but default on the sovereign isn't possible if the debt's issued in the currency of the country. On the other hand, private sector debtors can't print money to service their debt, so default is a real possibility. Well, Americans may well want to cheer the fact that China is burdened with these issues. What's the danger for us? All I would emphasize is that if the Chinese can't come up with a viable plan to allocate the burden, cut it, and move on, then the continuing debt overhang will be exacerbated by a number of other headwinds for the Chinese economy, such as the simple fact that it's now so large and mature that it can't grow nearly as fast as it used to. Also, there's the fact that President Xi's drive to control the economy is undermining its growth prospects and horrible demographic graphics mean the workforce is imploding. A private sector debt crisis can look like the U.S. Great Depression. A collapse in China would be a serious blow to the global economy. Now, I don't think that Great Depression outcome is likely. Instead, I think the risk is that China repeats the Japan experience post-1990, which means really slow growth for decades. What is unknown is if China can manage this growth slowdown as well as Japan did, because if it can't, it might try to lift growth by war. Quickly touching on the other issues, number five is identified as America's superpower status and the fracturing of domestic consensus. Americans who have been left behind economically may not be overly concerned about superpower status. If our days as a superpower are waning, should investors be worried? My take is that a full loss of superpower status would likely be negative, whether it came from China displacing the U.S. as the sole great power or from the world atomizing into a totally fractured, every-man-for-himself world. But I think either of those worlds would take a long time to develop. In the near-to-medium term, we're likely to see a fracturing of the world into relatively separate geopolitical and economic blocks as 
we've written before. We foresee the U.S. continuing to dominate its own evolving bloc, which will basically be made up of today's rich, highly industrialized liberal democracies and a select number of closely allied emerging markets. For U.S. investors, the evolving global universe will look a lot like today's, but with much reduced access to China, Russia, and their types. Now, the evolving U.S.-led universe or bloc will probably grow slower than the global economy did over the last couple of decades, and it'll struggle to deal with higher price inflation and elevated interest rates. But it would still probably be better than a fully fractured world operating under the law of the jungle. And I would chime in here too. Yes, investors should be worried, but the condition is probably manageable, as Patrick points out. Investors will have to live in a world with higher inflation, especially higher inflation they've seen over the past four decades, and likely weakening profit margins over time. It's not that investors can't make money, but what's worked really well for the past 40 years probably won't work as well going forward. Turning to domestic consensus, it does seem much harder to achieve these days. Our elected officials seem less willing to compromise. Is our elected government experiencing paralysis that gives autocratic systems like China the upper hand? Well, I think it's a real possibility. Throughout history, democracies have tended to outperform autocracies. Hayek argued that the distributed nature of democracy and capitalism allowed decisions to be made at the most efficient level. Centralized planning simply couldn't duplicate that. But with AI and increased computerization and the gathering of data, China might be able to duplicate the efficiency of democratic capitalism without the periodic disunity that occurs in democracies. Number six on the list is climate change. How might our deteriorating relationship with China impact this drive toward clean energy? Well, it, it's actually, in my opinion, real simple. China is an alternative energy superpower. If nations want to quickly move to alternative energy, importing the products from China is the most efficient response. But if you want to build that industry domestically, the transition will take longer and cost more. That's your choice. And I'll only add that as U.S.-China frictions prompt the building of new, highly efficient, tightly regulated factories here in the U.S., I wouldn't be surprised if the production process for some goods actually becomes cleaner than in China, where much of the power comes from burning dirty coal. Of course, the greater cost of solar panels and other green energy products now produced by China would offset part of that by slowing the green energy transition. But that just illustrates how complex it is to understand such a topic. Issue number seven brings us close to home. It is our relationship with our neighbor Mexico, which we do tend to take for granted. What might threaten this relationship? You know, there's an old line about Mexico, which is so far from God, so close to the United States. The U.S. has benefited from the fact that Mexico hasn't been a geopolitical threat since 1840. Thus, we haven't had to expend lots of resources to protect our country from an invasion or military threat from the South. We do have to work to monitor and maintain immigration flows, but that's far different than what we had to do in West Germany, for example. But the current president of Mexico, AMLO, is fiercely independent and tends to avoid cooperating with the U.S. And in addition, criminal cartels have undermined the Mexican government, creating conditions where significant parts of Mexico are ungoverned. These areas could lead the U.S. to intervene militarily. If the U.S. is forced to divert military resources to secure the border, these resources may not be available in other areas. 
Increasingly nationalistic and populist economic policies are certainly a, a big risk since they could imply much more restricted trade and capital flows between the U.S. and Mexico. For example, an awful lot of Mexican business operations are actually owned and developed by U.S. investors. So if Mexico clamps down on those investments, it could seriously crimp its own industrial development. And here's another thing to watch for. Climate change could alter Mexico's agriculture trade with the U.S. Even though farm products make up only a small part of Mexican exports to the U.S., they can be a big part of U.S. supply, especially in the winter months. If climate change pushes the Mexican planting season later in the year or forces its harvest season to conclude earlier, it could hurt U.S. food supplies and raise prices. Issue number eight is artificial intelligence. Thomas, we recently discussed this in some depth in a geopolitical report dated June 26th. And in that report, you discussed that AI does have the potential to revolutionize many industries, but you did suggest investors might currently be a little overenthusiastic. What should we monitor closely in the coming months to assess how disruptive AI might be to our economy and to our lives? In the next few quarters, we should receive new information in the quarterly earnings report about the latest advancements in generative AI, as well as the number of companies using the technology. Recently, Microsoft announced that it will be offering a training certificate to educate more people on the uses of this product. We believe as the number of people are educated on generative AI increases, so too will the number of people who are able to use it. There are four other issues mentioned in this mid-year report. They are the EU's stance toward Poland and Hungary, Middle East realignment, the Iranian nuclear breakout, and emerging market debt. These issues are lower on your list, but each seems to be fully capable of causing major market disruptions. Each probably deserves a separate discussion, but since our conversation is already hitting what probably is a listenable limit, we'll simply mention their existence and point listeners to your written report where they can access them in greater detail on confluenceim.com. I am wondering, though, even though your list is long, were there other issues that seemed worthy but didn't make the cutoff. I would only note that many of the issues we highlighted in our geopolitical outlook last December and in outlook articles even further back continue to be worthy of consideration even if we haven't dealt with them again here. For example, I would mention the space race and China's neo-colonialist approach to managing its evolving bloc, which we talked about in our December article. There are many big multi-year geopolitical trends that we have mentioned in the past and continue to track and write about even now. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Patrick, that space situation is a big one, but didn't make the cut this time around in part because it's so slow moving. We didn't include immigration, but with climate issues increasing, as we note in, with recent temperature extremes in India and the Middle East, that problem could get worse this year. As we sum up, these issues can seem overwhelming in their number and in how serious they are. What are the bottom line takeaways for investors? 
Phil, for countries as for people, hesitation is a dangerous thing. As the U.S. continues to hesitate about its traditional role as the global hegemon, and as it struggles with political polarization, it's invited bad behavior by other countries and could slow or complicate our response to global challenges. Without some measure of political consensus and cooperation, investors need to be aware that the global investment environment will probably be less stable and riskier than we got used to over the last couple of decades. Hopefully, our work and skills here at Confluence can help navigate through this world. The key message here is that the chances of unusual risks are elevated. Investors should be cautious about taking excessive risks. We note short duration is in both fixed income and equities is the order of the day. That means avoiding long maturity debt and leaning toward value and dividend stocks. In addition, we do expect higher inflation going forward. Allocations to address inflation, such as commodities, also make sense. Thank you, Bill, Patrick, and Thomas. Our report today is based upon sources and data believed to be accurate and reliable. Opinions and forward-looking statements expressed are subject to change without notice. This information does not constitute a solicitation or an offer to buy or sell any security. Our audio engineer is Dane Stoll. I'm Phil Adler. Phil Adler.